God of our ancestor Israel forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, are the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and on earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. And the second reading is Matthew 6, 9 to 13, and it says, Pray then in this way, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Amen. Uh, the final sermon in our series. Jeez, um, I'm looking forward to not having to do this on Sunday our final sermon in our series of messages, we've been looking at the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Sometimes we call it the Our Father. Sometimes it's called the Lord's Prayer. And it's found in Matthew and in Luke's Gospel, um, in Luke chapter 11 and in Matthew chapter 6. And in Matthew 6, it goes like this. The, our Lord Jesus teaches that this way. When praying, don't heap up empty phrases. He's teaching about prayer Give me just one minute, please. This will work. He says, don't heap up empty phrases. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, the bread we need to survive, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into the time of trial, but deliver us from the evil one. And then... It stops and it ends. And if you're looking at like um, an NIV or an ESV or an NRSV, I'm using the NRSV um, in the pews, they're the NIVs. All of the modern English translations will have a little letter there that then points to a footnote. And the footnote reads, other ancient authorities add in some form, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because we say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, every time we conclude that prayer in worship. So why was it taken out of the biblical text and relegated to a footnote? And the answer is, is because in translating the modern English translations of the Bible, that means all the, the translations that came a couple hundred years after the King James Version, the modern English translations of the Bible, the translators used a rule of thumb in translating the text. And the rule of thumb was that in order for an ancient text to be um, inserted or to be included into the authorized text, the rule of thumb is that it needed to be included in the great majority of original ancient manuscripts in order for it to be included. And we have something now like 4,000 uh, original Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, and this phrase is not found in the great majority of those texts. And so the modern translators 
did not include it in, uh, in, that, um, in, in the text. And so then, that raises the question, how does it get into, how did it get into the few texts that were there such that we would pray it every single week 2,000 years later, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And we can speculate that when Jesus taught this prayer, he taught the prayer and did not give it an ending. And the reason he didn't give it an ending is because like many of the parables, he left it open-ended. And when he leaves it open-ended, that then becomes a doorway for us to enter in and to then express or to conclude the prayer with what's on our own heart, with an appropriate response to all the petitions from the Lord's Prayer leading up to that final ascription. And so Jesus didn't teach it with that final ascription. He left it open-ended so that we could conclude it ourselves with our own lives, with our own prayers, with, what, with what's on our hearts. Okay, that sounds good. So then, how did the pray, phrase then get to be attached to a few manuscripts? And by the way, in Luke's account, it's not even mentioned at all, not even as a variant. It's not even just there. But one speculation that we can make on this is that very early in the life of the church, the early believers in the churches around the, um, the Mediterranean rim that Paul started, that they included the Lord's Prayer in their corporate worship, just like you and I do today. So we've been carrying this tradition for thousands of years, ever since the early church. And when the early church decided to include it into corporate worship, they decided that they wanted to give it an ending an appropriate ending, almost as a way of obeying Christ's leaving it open-ended. Christ left it open-ended, therefore we're going to give our appropriate response. And so they added this phrase. Um, and and uh, as they completed that brief part that Jesus taught them, they then added, um, they went into the Bible, actually, and they went into two places. I'm going to show you those two places where they went into the Bible, and they drew from those two places to write this ending. And the ending, of course, is for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. They could have chosen lots of different words, but those are the words they chose to end the Lord's Prayer with. Well, where did they reach into the Bible to, to draw out that theme, to write, craft that message? Um, and by the way, when the second or third century scribe was copying those manuscripts, that, that person or those several people likely remembered that this is what we've been saying in worship. And so that's why they then included it in, the, in those few manuscripts that then we have now relegated to the footnotes, right? So that's an hypothesis. So where does the phrase come from? Well, a few moments ago, Paris read so wonderfully from 1 Chronicles chapter 29, and this is the great prayer, the great final prayer of David, and it's one of the great Old Testament Psalms, and it's the final prayer of David before Solomon becomes king. It's found in 1 Chronicles 29, and this is where we believe that is the first place that this ascription came from. Listen to these words, and you'll hear the conclusion to the Lord's Prayer um, as Dave gives this, David gives this great prayer at the close of his life. Then David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of our ancestor Israel, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, are the greatness, the power, the glory, 
the victory and the majesty, that's kingdom language, for all that is in the heavens and on earth is yours. Here's King David saying, you're the king. So that's a wonderful thing. For all that is in the heavens and on earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Um, and the prayer actually goes on. You can read on yourself if you would like. And, but what you can see pretty clearly is that in this prayer, you have um, uh, actually a much shortened version in the Lord's Prayer of this prayer of David. Okay, so that's one place. The second place that they drew from were uh, ancient manuscripts of John chapter 17 that were circulating around the early church. John 17 is the final prayer of Jesus. It's this, well, not including what he said on the cross, but it's the last prayer um, on his, uh, before he goes to the cross, and it's his longest prayer on record. It's known as the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. I commend you to read that prayer this, this week on your own time, and when you do, you'll notice that the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, we have almost all of the themes from the Lord's Prayer reflected in, in that prayer um, in a shortened version. And so let's just take a look at the first three verses um, and how it kind of compares. After Jesus, in John 17, after Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Thine is the glory, right? Since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life, and authority is about, pow, um, is about kingdom, authority over all people, to give eternal life to all whom you have given. That's power, right? And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the foundation of the world. So forever, for all times, everlasting. You can see here in John 17 these themes from the ascription that concludes the Lord's Prayer. Okay, so how do we interpret this final phrase, this conclusion to the Lord's prayer, this final sentence. We've, we've closed the prayer, this simple prayer of Jesus. We've reflected on it for the last five weeks. This is the sixth week, and we close, uh, we close this prayer, and the early church started it with the words of David and the words of Jesus, and now we use those words of David and those words of Jesus, and we bring them from our own hearts, and we praise God. So the final ascription to the prayer is, an, a, is, an, is a praise. It is, a, it is a, an effort of, an intention of praise. And that's the way it ends. Uh, we, we've made these petitions, which Jesus taught us to say, and then we use this psalm, and we thank and we praise God. So notice the content. Um, we'll look through each of these briefly. In John chapter 17, first we praise him for his kingly reign. For thine is the kingdom. And Jesus says, you have given him authority over all. When you praise someone for their kingly reign, that means that as we close the Lord's Prayer, we, we are saying that we accept His reign over our lives. This isn't some distant and idle praise. God, how wonderful you are out there somewhere. No, we're saying thine is the kingdom. All of this is the kingdom. And so it's easy to adore Jesus, but it's difficult to follow Him. And what we're saying is 
you are king and I am subject. So in the New Testament, kingdom is never about a place. It's not about geography. It's about relationship. So wherever there's a king and there's a subject, there is the kingdom. And so it says, thine is the kingly reign. And that's the whole thrust of it. Uh, you hear it in David too. Um, I accept your kingly reign. And that reign has been revealed in Jesus Christ. We know what that reign looks like. We know what it looks like when God is in charge. It looks like, it looks like people functioning in the way of Jesus in the world. And so we thank him for the one who taught us the prayer as well. And so you ask, well, how do we know that God reigns? Where has God's lordship been shown? It's been shown in Jesus Christ. The word made flesh. His, the very speech of God. Right? So we thank him for his kingly reign. Second, we thank him um, for his power. We thank God for his power. We praise God for his power. And I would translate that his authority. He, that's the idea here. We praise him and we thank him that he has power and authority over all creation and even over the spiritual realm. We thank him for the fact that he is the rock. Right? So it even ends, the prayer concludes with amen. And out of he, in the Hebrew word for amen has this idea of solid, immovable rock. And in the Old Testament, that's, that's what the people, the Hebrew people leaned into. And they thought about God. They thought of him as this solid rock. And we thank him that he is the reality. He's the strength that we pray for at the beginning of the prayer. And we thank him that it's shown in Jesus Christ. And so the prayer thanks God and the prayer praises God for his power. And of course, power for, Christian, for the Christian is, is not that we would have power that we can then use over and against someone else. But power for the Christian is knowing that Jesus holds the ultimate power. It is that knowledge. And that is a great power to know. So thirdly, we praise him for his character. And that's, that's how I'm um, translating glory here is for his character. We praise him for who he is in his perfect character, his steadfast love and his kindness. You'll notice glory in, in the great high priestly prayer in John 17 refers to the, pre talks about the presence of God. And that's how they understood it in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament. The word is kavod. You might remember that from the Hebrew series we did um, several months ago, but it refers to the very presence and substance of God in the Old Testament. And when you get to the New Testament, glory, the Greek word is doxa, um, the main teaching for glory in the New Testament is in the Gospel of John, and it refers um, to the character of God. So in the Old Testament, it's about the presence of God, and in the New Testament, it's about the presence of God made manifest in the character of Jesus Christ. So God's glory is God's presence and God's love in Jesus Christ. And that's what we are praising um, God for. What he's like, who he is, the expression on his face. And we know the expression on his face because we've seen it in Jesus Christ. And so we thank him. And now as we close this prayer, the early church praised him for his glory his presence and character in Jesus Christ. And then finally, we thank him with the word forever. Forever. That this relationship with Jesus Christ, it lasts on. It goes on forever. And this is here the biblical view of history comes into play a little bit. 
we believe that Jesus Christ, who stands at the end of time, also stood at the beginning of time and also stands in the middle. Paul says in Colossians that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In him all things were made. He himself was before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he was in the beginning of history, that God's love stands at the origins of history. He also stands at the middle of history. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he also stands at the end of of history as well. The book of Hebrews says he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And this is a very important point because we praise him now at the close of this prayer that, in, that the Jesus Christ that we have met in the middle of our pilgrimage is the same Jesus Christ who will meet us at the end of our pilgrimage. And so we're not alone. We're never alone. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And that's the way the prayer ends. You can think about this in terms of human history or in terms of the history of your own life. Where you and I live right now, when we die, our lives don't turn into an abyss of nothingness. That is great news. At the end of our life, when we die, we're in the presence of Jesus Christ, who stood at the beginning and at the middle of our lives. He stands at the end too. That's true personally in our lives, even as it is true historically. And the final inscription praises God for that. So now let me pull it all together in another way. We've talked about it theologically. We've um, talked about it biblically. I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about it existentially or personally for you and me. The prayer closes with our grateful acceptance of Christ as Lord of all life of what God has shown of himself. And last week we reflected on the messiness of, of life and how sometimes this neat and tidy prayer shows up in a crooked and messy and confusing world. And we saw that exampled by Jesus when he entered into the dark moment of his life on the night before he went to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. And with this prayer on his in his imagination, he gives a cry out to God in the middle of the messiness of all of that. And so I want the question that, that this prayer asks of us is for our own reflection and our own conversation with God, are we ready to express this kind of thanks to God as Jesus did in a messy and crooked world. Once we get beyond the fact that these are mere words, that, we, that they can become rote, we can repeat them, we can memorize them, they're very lyrical, they go well together, but are we ready to make such words come out of our mouth and are we ready to mean them? That's the question that this series and this prayer um, asks us. It's a huge question that we have to ask whenever we pray this prayer. Francis Schaeffer uh, once was asked, what is a Christian? Can you describe what is a Christian in one minute or less? And, and I like his answer. He gave his answer. I want to share it this morning. He said, a Christian is a person uh, who has bowed, bowed twice in their life. They bowed, a Christian is a person who bowed once in humble admission that I am not autonomous. And the Christian who is someone who then bowed a second time in humble gratitude for Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. 
that's a Christian in less than a minute. It's not comprehensive, um, but it's essence. And I'm intrigued by it so much so that I want to reflect on it for a moment because I think that these two bows, bowing once in humble admission that I am not autonomous, and bowing secondly in humble gratitude for Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, are really what the Lord's Prayer is all about. We've been spending the last five weeks talking about bowing once. Uh, the first time I ran into that word, we are autonomous, we are not autonomous, was, was from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and, and he used it in exactly the same way. He said we, that we were made to live from the center, but the first sin is that we want to be the center. We want to be in the center. And that would be the autonomous man or the autonomous woman, the self-made man or the self-made woman, as Aldous Huxley would say, the, the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. And to be a Christian is to first bow and to say, I am not the master of my fate. I am not the captain of my soul. I bow in humble admission that I am not autonomous. And so have you thought about how the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, all of those petitions are really another way of saying this same thing, of bowing in humble admission that I am not autonomous. It re remember, it begins with the very first word, our. Our Father, who art in heaven. It's not just my Father. He's our Father. Even the Father of the people I don't like very much and, and even of my enemies, I'm not autonomous. He is the Father of all. And we've talked about the struggle of, of um, using the, the word Father to refer to God. And God is neither male nor female. But God is the perfect parent who embodies the perfect fatherly qualities and the perfect motherly qualities. And when we can work through our own um, sometimes for some of us and others there's more trauma, but what we see is, is that, uh, that we belong to a higher being, right? So we acknowledge that in the beginning of the prayer. Who art in heaven, um, billions of light years away and yet closer than the air we breathe. In our desires to make our own names hallowed, we say, your name be hallowed, not my name. I am not autonomous. Uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's bowing once to say your kingdom, not mine. Your will, not mine. I am not autonomous. Give us this day our daily bread is another way of, of bowing once again. It is to say I'm, I'm only here because I'm being sustained by a being that is greater than me, that is, sustains all living things. God, feed me what I need to survive and feed me your son, the gift of uh, the bread of life. So bowing once when we say, give us this day our daily bread. I'm not autonomous. I need you to sustain me. And when we pray for forgiveness, we're definitely bowing once, saying that I am not autonomous. Bonhoeffer, again, wrote in his classic, The Cost of Discipleship, he said, forgiveness is the one thing that we cannot confer upon ourselves. We cannot confer forgiveness upon ourselves. We might try, and we do try, but we can't do it. Let's say you get into a really big argument with your brother or your sister, and it's the morning before school, and you fight, and you get into this huge argument, and then you storm out of the house, and you slam the door, and for all you know, you slam the door in your brother's face and, and, and caught his nose in the door. And, and so now you're at school, and you start feeling really terrible. Oh, I did this horrible thing, my brother, because you've injured your brother now. 
And so what you do then is you decide, okay, well, what I'm going to do now, I feel so bad about that. I'm going to be very kind and, and really nice to everybody at school. And I'm going to give my lunch away to everybody at school. Um, and, and then people will, will know that I'm really not that mean person who slammed my brother's face in the door, but that I'm really a nice person. And of course, that's called altruism, right? And altruism is the oldest trick in the book that we've used to try to atone for our own sins. We do something wrong to our wife and husband. We go off to work and we say, oh, I'm going to be, I'm going to be way kinder at work than, uh, than I ever have before. The American Heart Association is there with a fundraiser. You write a check for $100. You don't usually do that, but I'm going to do that today. And having done that, then you, you think to yourself, well, see what a nice person I am. I'm so much nicer than my brother thinks I am, whose face is still caught in the door. And the problem with altruism is that we can do these great and lofty things. We can even do great heroic things with our bodies and such. But the problem is, is that we're still not right with our brother or sister until repentance and forgiveness has been exchanged. In other words, forgiveness admits that I am not autonomous. I cannot by myself solve my own crisis. And when the Lord taught us to pray, forgive us our sins, and the prayer goes on, help us to forgive our neighbors, that's ethics, both of those admit that I'm not autonomous. I don't live in a world by myself. I have brothers and sisters all over the world, uh, many whose faces are caught in doors because of me. Uh, and I need forgiveness from God and from them. I need to and I need to know how to offer forgiveness when they injure me. And when we prayed, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, we bowed once in humble admission that I am not autonomous. There is a breaking point. I can't handle the evil of this world on my own. I need the help of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. None of us is flawless or powerful enough to withstand temptation. We're not autonomous. We're not in this alone. And then now we come to the very close of our prayer, um, the close of the Lord's Prayer, and we bow a second time. And this then is in humble gratitude, in praise for the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We praise God and we thank God. We bow in humble gratitude for Jesus' reign as king over all creation and over our lives, for Jesus' power and for uh, Jesus' love and glory that was shown at the cross. God's glory is revealed on the cross and the resurrection. And so we thank him for that. We praise him for that. And we praise him that the companionship with Jesus Christ will last for all time. And that, friends, is faith. That's Christian faith, all wrapped up in this, the Lord's Prayer. That's the praise that admits Christ into your life as Lord and Savior. So on the basis of what you know about Jesus Christ, are you willing to pray this prayer of thanksgiving today? Let us pray. God, we do come before you to bow first in humble admission that we are not autonomous. Even on this Independence Day, as we celebrate our freedom and the freedom that we have to worship you, we acknowledge that we're also taught uh, 
a rugged individualism here that is conflicting in many ways to the gospel. So correct, um, correct our false beliefs. Help us to know that we are on a great big stage, that you are God and Father of all creation, that you are King and that we are your subjects. We thank you that you love us, that you feed us with food and with the bread of life. We thank you that our promise that you have given to us of eternal life lasts forever. That you, Jesus Christ, who was in the beginning, who has met each of us personally and collectively in the middle of our own journeys, is the same Jesus Christ who will meet us at the end. And we look forward to this great day. We love you and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.